0: I'm going to share this evening out of the Gospel of John. And in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verses 9 to 17, Jesus is recorded as saying this, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you may go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. So I don't know if you noticed, but the word command is used a fair bit in that passage. Uh, Jesus is pretty clear. This is very directive. It doesn't really get more directive than this. And it's not a suggestion, and it's not even advice. That's not the way that it's framed. This is a command. And so what do we read is commanded? Love is commanded. So I guess the question that this poses is, how are we, as followers of Jesus, the ecclesia, how are we going with this command? Patchy, maybe. Uh, I, I think it's both most... The most simple and probably the most difficult instruction in all of scripture. Because this command has this really uh, annoying qualifier. And the qualifier is that this command is more than just loving each other, it's more than just loving people that we kind of like and we want to hang out with, it's more than loving people of our own creed and our own thought and our own agreement. It's more than loving people who kind of look like us and think like us. Jesus' qualifier is, as I have loved you. So essentially what he's saying is love each other and. Love each other and love the people who are least like you. Love each other and love those people that you don't really find that lovable. Because that's kind of how and who Jesus loved. He, he loved the lepers and he loved the woman accused of adultery and he loved the tax collector and he loved the fisherman, and he loved the Roman centurion and he loved the broken and the grief-stricken and the poor and the lost and the outcast and so Jesus essentially completely uh, expanded and kind of redefined the definition of who belongs of of who is worthy and kind of who is in the grouping of who we can bestow love and compassion upon And so what we learn from Jesus is that love extends to those who are rejected. Love extends to those who are essentially excluded by what we would call the dominant culture. Uh, I don't know if you're on Slack. Uh, Slack's the communication tool that we use um, to communicate in the found community. Uh, If you're not, let me know and we're happy to put you on there. Um, But I shared on Slack this week uh, an op-ed in the Brisbane Times. Uh, It was by a friend of mine, and and the op-ed was titled Why a simple gesture from our local shopping centre means so much. Um, And and it was written by uh, Fahim, who I said is a friend of mine. He's a very talented man, he's um, a very talented management consultant uh, for one of the top five accounting and business advisory firms in the country. Uh, He's a dad to three kids, he's also a Muslim. He also serves on the board of the Islamic Council of Queensland. So he's he's someone of significant repute in the Muslim community. And and I don't know if you know this, but next week uh, is the celebration of Ramadan. It commences. And Ramadan essentially uh, is an annual observance in the Islamic calendar where Muslims fast every day. They abstain from food. They abstain from water, uh, from sunrise to sunset for an entire month. Um, and as a child I actually participated in Ramadan. My dad is Muslim, Uh, my mum was Methodist Uniting Church and so I would often go to the mosque on Friday uh, and I'd often go to Sunday school at the local Baptist church and that seemed relatively normal uh, for a skinny barefoot kid running around Redcliffe. Um, And and I really love what Fahim shared, it it was honest and it was vulnerable uh, and if you haven't read it already, I really encourage you to read it. I'm just going to share um, a, bit, a bit from it. Uh, he wrote this. Terrorism has succeeded in dehumanising and dividing us all. It, along with countless four-panel experts on 24-hour news networks, has successfully created a perception that Islam is abhorrent at its core and that Muslims who do not accept this are in denial. Such Muslims need to be avoided, feared, or if you are feeling generous, saved. We are constantly told by popular politicians, even those with multiculturalism portfolios. We're told by respected media personalities and renowned academics that if it weren't for today's mad level of political uh, correctness, we would all be able to call out Islam for what it is. Many Muslims have sadly come to terms with this as well. It is too difficult to find Uh, A large enough platform that can counter the shock value of an ISIS beheading or the loud Allahu Akbar which precedes it. Society needs a common enemy to make sense of the complexities of the world and the irrationality of the evil that exists within it. For now, terrorists have successfully convinced many people (coughs) that Islam is the most logical candidate. The collateral damage of this situation includes everyday Muslims. The ones who go about their day like any other person, trying to make something of their lives, working out how the NDS will be funded in the federal budget, and enjoying some cricket or football, all variants, when it's on the television. These Muslims will tell you Islam is nothing like what terrorists would have you believe, nor is it something to be scared of. The seven verses in the opening chapter of the Quran are not dissimilar in wording to the Lord's Prayer, which is recited before every sitting of the Australian Parliament. Islam's Abrahamic origin is why I won the Bible Knowledge Prize every year at high school without ever reading the Bible in any detail. 1 Corinthians 13 verses 4 to 8 is pretty amazing though. Any animosity which may exist between us is due to fear of the unknown and the manipulation of this fear by people with alternative agendas. As citizens, we can overcome this through engagement. We simply have to be courageous enough to reach out to one another with a smile. To paraphrase Trevor Noah, a South African comedian and author of Born a Crime, hatred cannot survive contact. It's a great piece and it's very honest and uh, I think it touches on a few issues. It's not easy to be a visible minority. And and Muslims, especially Muslim women, uh, who are brave enough to wear a hijab, which is the modest head covering that they wear in public, are a very visible minority and they're a very easy target. They're an easy target for fear. They're an easy target for hate. And sadly, many of the perpetrators of this fear are Christians. And even if they're not perpetrators, my experience is that most Christian leaders uh, do very little. They do very little to kind of try and ease the tension or build bridges or seek reconciliation. And so in the light of Jesus' command, I wonder how as Christians and as leaders, it is that we kind of manage to get it so wrong. G.K. Chesterton, who is an English writer and philosopher, a journalist, and a, a theologian, said, It isn't that they can't see the solution, it is that they can't see the problem. And I kind of believe this statement can be applied to what I would call a lopsided gospel. It's a gospel that has a gaping hole in it. And for too long, the church has essentially preached a gospel that is really all about reconciling people with God without recognizing that reconciling people with God is intrinsically linked to reconciliation with humanity and creation. And I think if we've been unable to kind of command heaven on earth, it's because we haven't really seen or acknowledged the problem. Jesus earnestly prays that what we call the church, his body would be one but i think what we see is that we're more intent on being right we're more intent on being certain we're kind of more intent on being doctrinally correct and arguing points of scripture through our own subjective lens and our own subjective bias and we see more intent on kind of drawing arbitrary lines around who is in and who is out and we see more intent on what we would call pharisaical work than on doing what Jesus commanded us to do, which is simply to love each other. And Jesus states that he shares this commandment with us so that his joy may be in us and that our joy may be complete. And so in a world of polarization and a world of division, in a world where people are still excluded because of their gender or their sexuality or their culture, Jesus offers us a better way He offers us joy through love, through inclusion, through belonging. And in a world that is genuinely looking for something to believe in, Jesus says, believe in love. And John tells us that God is love. So I kind of think that love is the solution, uh, but I also kind of see it as the final fight. Because what we see is that love is frequently sidelined. It's frequently sidelined as this kind of nice idea. It's, it's frequently sidelined in a, uh, for times of peace in a world that really kind of celebrates just war. It's, it's sidelined by greed and it's sidelined by the, the, um, the quest for power. But Jesus' command is at the heart of the gospel and the Christian faith. And if we keep sidelining it, then I kind of think it's little wonder that the relevance of Christianity and the relevance of the church is being questioned. If the church does become irrelevant, then it's only because we have authored it. We need to keep reminding ourselves of the centrality of love, the centrality of love to who we are, who we are called to be, because without it, and Paul talks about this in that uh, scripture that that Fahim references in his article, where, where noisy self-righteous Pharisees who are kind of hurling flaming rocks of certainty at each other and I think uh, if I could sum up my reading of Paul's heart and intent behind that chapter in a single sentence which is very difficult to do but I, I think it would be this I would rather be wrong than without love because love wins I would rather be wrong than without love because love wins and so I kind of imagine what if we applied that hermeneutic? What if we implied that interpretation to everything that Paul wrote? I don't reckon we'd have so many arguments. I don't reckon we'd have so many denominations. I don't think we'd have so many schisms. And I think that we would probably come a little bit closer to the realization of Jesus' prayer. And so that's really my prayer for this week, that we would rather be wrong than without love that we would seek reconciliation more than self-righteousness and that we would actively choose to love each other as Jesus did. Amen. Amen.